this series, we'll talk a little bit about where we're headed and why. Uh, if you didn't see the little, the little uh, uh, video on the bumper, because we were chatting and it was kind of noisy, but you'll, you'll see it every week, uh, made by our very own Chris McKeever. Thank you, Chris. Give Chris a hand, would you? I was 18 years old. It was 1985, and I was uh, in Lexington, Kentucky. It was where I grew up. And my first semester of college was at the University of Kentucky. And that year, uh, the front man from the police decided to break out on his own. And so Sting released his very first solo album. I don't know if you remember what it was called. Anybody remember? Yeah, Dream of the Blue Turtles. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. Come on. And, I, and so I, I, I grew up loving, absolutely loving music, all kinds of music. The, the question that is very hard for me to answer is when somebody says, what, what's your favorite kind of music? And I say, well, you know, it's music. That's my favorite kind. If it's music, I like it. And, and there's something to like about all kinds of music. So maybe you're like that. But my mom and dad and our family, very, very musical. I, I grew up as a drummer. All of us were drummers. That's why my mom had a nervous breakdown, all of that. And so we, we, all, we all just fell in love with music. Music was a big deal and, and listened to all kinds of music. But this was the first time I bought my ticket and went to Memorial Coliseum on the campus of University of Kentucky and saw Sting. And I'll never forget it. Uh, in fact, you, you can, I, I did some Googling around, you know, there's some things I remember about that night, but my memory, you know, is a long time ago and, and it's been a while, but you can uh, Google and find almost every set list played by every live performer at any concert that you would like. And I didn't remember this, but, you know, of course, Sting, he did all the stuff from Dream of the Blue Turtles. This was his first solo tour. And so he did a bunch of police stuff too. And, uh, and I love the police. I love their drummer, Stuart Copeland. I mean, I, you know, I, as a drummer, followed him. And uh, all of these things, I, I remember if you love someone, set them free like it was yesterday. He's on the stage. He's doing his thing. He's playing his bass. And it's just all sting. It's so good. And then he did encore. Came out again for another encore. Came out for one more encore. Three encores. Long knives. Great. The last song he did was was a, a police song, Message in a Bottle. And these moments, you remember the feeling, remember where we were or who we were with or what we were going through at the time, what we were experiencing. And music does something to our emotions and our heart and our mind. And you remember what it was like. And you remember why you were there and all the things that are connected to to music. Now, I don't know what it is, and we're going to explore it through this series. Uh, if, if anything, this series will take us, of course, through the best songs in the Bible. We'll talk a little bit about that. But it'll also take us down a road of understanding music and the emotions tied to it and how it's structured and what God has, has done through the creation of music. But I bet you can remember specific moments in time and the songs that were playing at those times and then you can be anywhere. You can be in the middle of Costco. You can be somewhere in a, in a restaurant. It, it, you can be in the car. It comes on the radio. And this song begins to play. And you are transported back to the same feelings and emotions and the atmosphere and who was there. And sometimes those feelings show up and you don't even know why you're feeling what you're feeling until you go, oh, it's that song. It's that song. I remember now. I remember that was playing when, 
when we met that was playing when I heard the news about you fill in the blank. And those feelings are, are present. Those emotional imprints, we'll call them. They're there because God has woven our hearts, our minds, and our souls together in such a fearful and wonderful way to understand what God does through music, to even begin to appreciate what he has created in the existence of music. Wow, it's just, it's unthinkable. Now, for the most part, music is often like, we'll call it oxygen for a moment. It's present, it's there, it's a part of our experience, but we almost don't give it the, the credence that it's due. So I want you, just for a moment, just for a, a, an awful, terrible moment, I want you to imagine a world without music. Just for a moment. Just imagine it without music. I mean, why would God create something like this anyway? It didn't exist before God created it. Was it present? In fact, the scriptures make it clear that he created all things by him and for him, speaking of Jesus. So just imagine a world without music. Imagine a, a wedding. Can you imagine a wedding without music? Imagine a, a funeral. A funeral without music. I've had many funerals in this room and many folks will be as, as thoughtful and pensive and maybe even a bit stoic, just trying to keep things bottled up. Not wanting to show emotion in front of other people, just feeling like if I, if I open the door to it, I'm just gonna be a mess. And they'll be doing well. Got things close to the chest. And then the music begins and the floodgates open. Imagine it without music. Uh, imagine a day at the beach without music. Imagine a road trip without music. Just imagine it. Uh, imagine Christmas morning without music. What a, what a colorless, dark, dark world it would be. Unthinkable, really. And yet God saw fit to create the, the tempo, uh, the notes, and the timber. I mean, you know a little bit about music. You know it's just vibrations in the air that make a noise. But now these notes are structured and put together Multiple notes come together and make a chord and chord progressions create this sense of feeling and sense of either desperation or sadness or hope, joy, anticipation, fear, all of these emotions wrapped up in music that brings us to a place of feeling what we didn't even know we felt. 
And God has created all of us, all of it, so that we would know not just ourselves, but that we would know God. This is exactly what happens with music. And we're going to dig deep into it throughout the summer. Music touches our emotions in ways that nothing else does. And it is everything from a combination of instruments and chords and progressions and notes to the lyrics that are accompanied with those very things. Some of you were able to leave the world behind a bit and leave your concerns and leave your worries behind and experience it a little bit this morning while we worshiped, didn't you? I can see it on some of your faces and, and some of you uh, experiencing the depth of the lyrics that we sang. Uh, here, here's a couple lyrics that we sang in this room this morning and those online, you sang them at home. We sang this line, in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Has anybody ever done that? How many of you did it this week? How many of you woken up at two or three in the morning and thought, I don't even know where to turn. Oh God, help me. Why am I awake again? What are you doing? Why is this happening in my life? This lyric written that we sing captures the emotion that some of us feel when life isn't really going our way. And we've all been at that place in the darkness of night when things feel like they couldn't really be any worse. And we feel that God is distant and yet we call out God's name. And when we do, well, some incredible things begin to happen. Humility begins to form. God senses that you know your help can only come from one place, that you've tried everything, you don't have all the answers. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. And if you were tracking, you know, as we sang these lyrics this morning, then just a couple minutes after you sang this line, you sang this line. Then came what? That sealed the, your buried body began to, and you sang the lyrics that described the arc of the gospel story. That death comes first, but then comes resurrection. Uh, in fact, this is the essence of hope, that things might not always be the way they are when things are awful and bad and hard and difficult and desperate. And so what comes? What comes? Well, the morning comes. And you've experienced that. At 3 a.m., crying out, and you saw the sun coming up, and you thought, oh, my goodness. You might have even called to mind scriptures that say, you know, his mercies are new. How often are they new? Every morning. And these lyrics that come from scripture or that are written by us representing scripture, this is the truth of the gospel. But it finds its target in our hearts and in our soul and in our lives most often when it's, a, when it's accompanied with or connected with the lyrical movement of a song and the beautiful, the beautiful sound of music. I don't know why. God, God made it. He made us Lego pieces that fit together, but we're going to explore it. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are about 190 songs in the Bible. You probably know about 150 of them, and you can think of a few others, I bet. The Psalms, 
or the Psalms, same interchangeable understanding of the word. The Psalms are located right there in the middle of your Bible. If you let it fall open to the middle, you'll find one of them probably. And there's a, you know, a good bunch of those. But then there are songs that go all the way back to the book of Exodus and all the way into the book of Revelation. And they're all throughout scripture. And these songs have lyrics, they have meaning, they have power. They capitalize on the most joyful moments of scripture and they take us into the most, the lowest, the, the deepest of the pits that we find, the saddest experiences of scripture. In fact, whatever you're feeling, or maybe better said, whatever you would like to feel, you can find something in scripture that is represented by music over and over again. We even sang some lyrics from scripture this morning. You sang them. Maybe you didn't even know that they're in the Bible. Maybe you didn't know that they're in scripture, but we sang these words. We sang, in fact, let's just say it together. We sang it, let's say it, okay? You ready? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Comes from this song in Revelation where John is in exile. He's on an island. He's been kicked out of society because of his faith and following Jesus. And as while he's on this island, God kind of catches him up to a place where he can see a picture of the future that is to come. And he begins to sing this song along with the angels and those who are surrounding the throne of God. And he says, you know what is true? This is what is true. God is holy. And he always has been. He is today and he is to come. And all the things, the troubles, the difficulties that John has experienced in his life and that he knows his friends, many of them martyrs, died for their faith. John is reassured by the fact that God is still on the throne and still in charge. And so are you. So are you. When you find yourself in that desperate moment at 3 a.m., if you turn to some of these truths, you'll be reminded that, ah, it feels bad, but I know God's with me. It feels like a very hard time, but I know that God is working history toward a conclusion where he reigns, I am healed, and we are all restored. This is true. We also sang a version of, of this verse as well this morning in our, in our worship. All the earth worships you, sings praises to you, sings praises to your name. You just sang this phrase, all the earth, all the earth. In fact, Jesus said it. His followers were extolling his praise and being kind of loud and rambunctious as came into Jerusalem. And somebody said, you know, you should tell your followers to pipe down a bit. You're going to get in trouble I mean, you're already in hot water. The religious leadership is not going to take kindly to everybody throwing these palm leaves at your feet and calling you king. It's going to get you killed. And Jesus simply says, I mean, I can tell them to be quiet if you want, but if I do, you remember what he says? The rocks will cry out. What does he mean, the rocks? All the earth, all the earth. Have you been at Rocky Mountain National and you've seen some of the rocks that are jutting up from the earth and it looks like one of us who has raised their hands in worship? Have you looked at creation? Have you heard the song of the birds this spring? Have you paid attention to what the, the water is doing to the things that are growing in your yard? Some of you have mowed your grass five times already. Have you paid attention to the size of the leaves and the flowers that you didn't even know existed that are there? This is the earth. It's all of the earth worshiping God.
over and over and over again. And so this is what we'll do. We'll dig into the songs of scripture and we will allow the, the lyrics that are there, we don't know the notes of these songs, but we'll allow, we, we, we know probably the tempo of some of them, uh, but there are so many little Hebrew words in the book of Psalms that we don't even know what they mean today. So we're going to make some guesses. We're going to dig into some music appreciation, if you will. And as we do so, we hope that the songs of scripture that are there will deeply impact our hearts, minds, and our souls. And so nestled in a New Testament book is a one of the earliest, what many scholars believe to be one of the earliest Christian hymns in existence. It's in the book of Philippians. In fact, the book of Philippians is, is entirely, it's a letter written by Paul. He was in jail and wrote uh, to a group of Christians to thank them and, and encourage them. And the entire letter that he writes is structured around this Christian hymn, this ancient Christian hymn. And I bet you've read it, maybe you've seen it. But it's unique. It's unique not only in its structure, but in its content. And it begins like this. He mentions Jesus in the verse before, and then he flows into the text of this ancient hymn. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself, what? By taking the, say it with me very nature of a servant and being made in, say it with me, human likeness. This is the beginning of this hymn. And as Paul begins to write this, it helps us to understand the nature of what an ancient hymn is like and what makes this unique and what makes this powerful. Hymns weren't unique to Christians in the ancient world. Hymns were sung all the time. They were a part of life. Music isn't unique to the Christian world, if you will. Music, as you have mentioned, the many concerts that you have been at, uh, music, it goes across every culture, every faith system, every religion, every you fill in the blank. Music is a part of it. It exists just like nature exists. And God is seen in the middle of it. Most of the hymns that we can have some understanding of that are ancient, just like this hymn, had a purpose and had a goal in mind and extolled or maybe lifted up some virtues or values for the given moment in time. Before this hymn was written, before Christ came, just a few centuries before, the center of the religious world was the, the Greek world. And the center of that Greek world was a town called Delphi. It was the religious center of the entire world at the time. It wasn't Jerusalem it wasn't even Israel, but the world itself was centered around this place called Delphi. In fact, these are the, these are the ancient ruins of, a, of the, the center of the Delphi city there in Greece. The ancient world wasn't godless. They had all kinds of gods. You know their names. You study them in school. The Greek and Roman gods that took up center stage the myths that were told and the stories of the underworld and the stories of the stars. And you were even told when you were growing up why these stars were in certain places. These were all of the understanding that the ancient world had about the gods that existed, gods plural. And this particular place in Delphi, this what was at one time a tribute or a temple was to one of those gods. His name is Apollo. And Apollo was a very important Greek god. 
He was the supreme. Well, almost. His, his dad was the supremest. Does anybody remember who Apollo's dad was? Zeus, that's right. The Greek god Zeus. And it was the son of Zeus that became Apollo. And some of the ancient hymns that we're aware of and that we know were written to these gods. It's a part of worship, if you will. I would do it with a small W, but it's still the same. It's all related to creation and God and not the one true God. But this was made to Apollo. In fact, in this area, there is this stone. It's, a, it's called the hymn of Delphi. And this, this hymn that was written um, a few centuries before Jesus was born, and it was written to extol the virtues of this God, Apollo, is all about him. And we even have some musical notations that are part of it. And this has been translated from the original Greek into English. But essentially, this tells the story of a God. His name is Apollo, and he was a victorious God. He was a God who won mighty battles. He tamed a snake. That, that's enough for me to go, okay, he gets my, he gets my respect. Um, he, I mean, it's all fiction, right? But it's a myth, but this is, this is the God Apollo. He conquered enemies. He established his kingdom. All of these things tell the story of a victorious domination of Apollo. And this was the nature of the ancient hymns that were written for the purpose of talking about the gods. And it was in this spiritual culture of the Greek and Roman gods that Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, he begins to turn things around. And Jesus says things like this. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the Greek and Roman culture that Jesus was born into, there were many virtues that were extolled and lifted up as important ones. Honesty, integrity, courage, fidelity, you name it. And they're all in the writings of the ancient fathers, the people that talked about this wisdom and promoted it as a big deal and very, very important. And you can read all of these writings, they exist. Just like our scriptures exist, those writings exist as well. Now, you can read the writings of Aristotle, who was by many declared to be one of the wisest that has lived and, and one of the most thoughtful philosophers that has lived. And when you read the writings of Aristotle, he makes it clear. These are the virtues that you and I are to pursue. And he lists them. In fact, he's got a list of his 10 most important virtues. What is missing and incredibly absent among his virtues is the virtue of humility. It's not even there. In fact, in almost all the writings of antiquity, it becomes incredibly clear that humility is distinctly, historically, always has been a Christian idea. In fact, I, I misspoke a bit. Aristotle did write about humility in a negative way. 
In fact, he says that humility is to be something that you shame and push aside and that you should not embrace at all. Humility doesn't understand your place in society or what you bring to the world. Humility is something that only those who have little or little to offer that they would embrace. And in this moment of worship and gods and power and dominion and victory and destruction... We have Zeus and Apollo, and Jesus shows up and says that. And he turned everything upside down, completely upside down. This week, I I had a a lunch with one of my heroes of faith. Uh, He is a gentleman that um, is a part of our church fellowship and has been almost since the beginning, but for a very, very long time. His name is Richard J. Foster. And... Back in 1978, uh, Richard Foster wrote a book called The Celebration of Disciplines, 45 years ago. And this book that he wrote is considered to be by many, if not most, and certainly not all, I suppose, but by most people, the formative work about spiritual formation and discipleship that has ever been written in the modern times. Uh, Richard is a part of our church family and was very, very good friends with uh, Herb and Paula Frost who started the church and has been around for a long, long time. He lives in Franktown. And he was here on Easter Sunday, uh, Richard was. And I've met him a couple times and, and had a chance to spend some time with him. And then I thought, I, I, you know, I, I don't know why I have it, Donna suggested, you know, you should, you should go take Richard to lunch. And uh, I thought, oh, he would never want to eat lunch with me. But then I thought about the nature of who he is as a person. And I thought, he, he would, he'll probably just say yes out of obligation. So I asked. <laughs> and, uh, and he ended up buying me lunch, the little, little person he is. He just he thought he, he ended up paying. And so um, anyway, we spent some time at lunch. And, uh, and this, this book, The Celebration of Discipline, was formational in my faith, in my understanding of who Jesus is. And what it means to walk with him in a daily way. And so if you haven't read it, it's it's a classic. It is uh, one of the best books you'll read about the habits of following Jesus in a consistent and thoughtful way. Uh, Richard is uh, eminently a humble man. He is a, a very thoughtful man and very kind and very gentle. And he brought with him a copy of the, the latest book that he um, that he's written Richard's 81 now, 81, and, uh, and the book that he has, has recently written, he thinks it probably will be his last, he doesn't know, God may give him another one, but the, the book that he has written is in my hand, uh, no, you can't borrow it, it's signed to me, um, <laughs> he inscribed it to me, it's uh, entitled Learning Humility, this is his book. The idea that humility is to be learned is, is escaped on us. We think either somebody's humble or it's not humble. We think somebody either struggles with pride or the idea that we would embrace a path that involves learning humility is contrary not just to our culture, but it's contrary to who we are as people. The, the problem in Greek and Roman culture that, that pride was central, that what you bring to the table is what matters most, all of that is, was true then, it is just as true now. Humility is not extolled as a virtue outside of Christian circles. 
Humility isn't held up as a goal for anybody that doesn't really understand the nature of what it means to follow Jesus. Humility is the idea that we take a thoughtful look at our sinfulness and and who we are and that we allow who God is to make up for that deficiency. And this is not the nature of our culture at all. And so as an 81-year-old man, this hero of the faith is convicted by God that he should spend an entire year learning to embrace humility. And as he does so, God does this unique work in his life. There's a, there's a little portion that I wanted to read to you. And, uh, and I just chuckled as I read it. I hope I can find it. I marked it. I had a bookmark there. We're just going to sit here until I find it. <laughs> Here's what he says. Today I learned the hard lesson that service or humility and anger don't mix. I was working in the kitchen, cleaning this and that. Indeed, I was rather proud of my little act of service. Just then, Carolyn, that's his wife, Carolyn made a remark that did not sit well with me. I quickly responded in anger, and of course, I got back exactly what I deserved. Our anger only lasted a short time, and we quickly made up. But by this point, any thoughts of humility were out the window. And in reading that little short paragraph, my respect of Richard Foster grew a hundredfold. This moment where he finds himself tested and pride rose up. And then I thought as I held the book in my hands, uh, he's 81, walked with Jesus his entire life, grew up a Quaker, he's still a part of the Friends Fellowship. He struggles with this. Am I surprised that this is a struggle for me? What's happened in Christian thought as a result of Jesus' teachings is that humility has become the foundational value, the foundational virtue from which all other virtues flow. Augustine agrees, Richard Foster agrees, and everybody in between. That if humility isn't in place, then nothing else has any, any room or any merit. And you can test this with any virtue you would like. Consider generosity. Well, I can be very generous, but if humility isn't there at the foundation, then all I'm doing is blowing my own trumpet and letting everybody know what a generous person I am. This is true for every other virtue. In fact, what the ancient Greek and Roman gods and philosophers did not understand before Jesus hit the scene is that if humility isn't place, everything else is a waste. And it's because of what Jesus taught. And it's into that Greek Greek and Roman culture where Jesus shows up and he says this. And then this hymn is developed. People are singing about the virtues and the domination of other gods. And the Christians come along and they begin to say this. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He made himself nothing. He had the very nature of a servant. He was made in human likeness. That this was an early Christian hymn is absolutely scandalous. It makes no sense at all. This is our God. He's like us. No. The people of the time and the people of today don't want a God like us. We want a God that wins, that is victorious, that dominates. But Jesus says, no, that's not who I am. 
and that's not who I've called you to be. And this hymn moves further. We're going to read it before we take communion. And being found in appearance as a man, he what? Humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is antithetical to him even being God. And yet they're painting a different picture of what it means to follow him. In other words, if we don't have a sense that our pride is slowly being thoughtfully put in check by this hymn, then we're not understanding the words that we're reading. Because he goes on to say this, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him, say it with me, the name that is above every name. You've sung that in how many worship songs? It comes right from this ancient hymn. And that at the name of Jesus, say it with me, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In the last line, let's say it all together. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the ancient hymn that says, this is our God. This is who he is. This is what he extols as a virtue, and it is the fundamental virtue. So it could be that if Richard Foster is an 81-year-old disciple of Jesus, needs a year to understand humility, it might take me about a decade or two or three. And that that ought to be the passionate pursuit of my heart, this humility. Because here's the interesting thing. Here's the reason why this hymn is even in Philippians. You can read it. It's right there, Philippians chapter 2. It's all connected. But right before Paul launches into the lyrics of this hymn, this is the phrase. He says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And the hymn begins. The only reason Paul gives us this hymn is so that we would know how to be with one another.